very cold on the floor. All I wanted to do was run a hot bath, but that would have been the worst thing I could have done. <laughs> would have accentuated the bleed. That's, uh, no, I could have drifted off, but uh, so the more important things to live for. Breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast series about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. You may be well familiar with Flinders Island in the Bass Strait, a part of Tasmania. It has some 800 permanent residents and is an island that the RFGS regularly services. You may not be aware that there are actually two other Flinders Islands, one in Queensland and another in South Australia in the Great Australian Bight, some 30 kilometres off the coast of Ellenston, South Australia, and privately owned by the Woolford family. The island, which is the equivalent of 6,000 football ovals, has been used for farming purposes for generations. And in addition to population of penguins, there's also whaling and sealing stations that were based on the island going way back to the 1820s. A few years ago, the remote farming island was converted to a safe haven to protect existing bird life and reintroduce priority mammal species. And there's a conservation project jointly funded by the state and federal government, which will help to eradicate pests, restore native habitats and reintroduce threatened species to the island. The Wolford family continues to own and manage the island and since 1987 have been harvesting wild abalone around the island. In recent years, they've also added luxury accommodation, which is in high demand due to the beauty and the remoteness of the place. I have with me here three members of the Woolford family, Peter and his two adult sons, Jonas and Tobin. Now, some years ago, a major health emergency occurred on this picturesque but remote island. And I'm hoping that you, three of you, can enlighten us on what occurred. Hello to you all. Hello. How are you? Hello. 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 Peter, let me start with you. As the owner of Flinders Island since the late 70s, you've spent a lot of time there. Could you describe what Flinders Island's landscape looks like and what the oceans are like? Uh, The oceans are very clean and clear and can be very nice on good days and very rough on other days. The island itself is uh, gently undulating with... uh, quite a few thick areas of uh, black tea tree and other melaleuca coverings. Red ground with nice red ground. It's, uh, we've just been harvesting some beautiful big mushrooms from because of the beautiful uh, rains we've recently had. What do you love about it, Peter? No, I love the uh, isolation of it. Yes, you know, not being hassled by anyone out there and uh, just the 
gentle, rugged beauty of it. Now, it is some 35 or 34 kilometres off the coast. So how do you access your island? Um, access is by boat, but uh, I'm mainly flying backwards and forwards now, much quicker and easier. That's great. Now, you have a house on the island, but you live on the mainland. Is that right? So you live on the mainland but come out to the house at times, or do you stay there at various points? There's actually two houses on the island, uh, one right on the water's edge at Groper Bay, which uh, is available for holiday accommodation, which sleeps up to 10 people. The other house is uh, three kilometres to the north of that, and uh, that's uh, my island home when I'm out there. Uh, Initially, I lived at the Groper Bay house uh, for 10 years, and then uh, had managers there and then decided to move the managers to the uh, manager's house where the uh, shearing shed is and shearer's quarters because if people wanted an island holiday, I felt they needed to be right on the water's edge, which this holiday house is. It sounds beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Now, Jonas, you grew up with a family owning an island. It's pretty unusual. Have you come to love the place as much as your dad? Most definitely, Lana. Growing up on an island, I I moved out there when I was uh, one year old and my brother um, was just a baby in in mum's arms and spent nine years living out there in absolute freedom. Wow. At the time, I didn't know any different. When I look back on it now, you just you pinch yourself at how privileged we were to, to have that upbringing. And the, the scrub, as uh, uh, the old man was talking about, to explore and play in and then the beaches and the reef in front of the house was just out of this world. It, it's great. And we now have the great opportunity to take our children back out there when, when we go out and have holidays, um, which generally involve quite a bit of work as well. But uh, <laughs> we love it. We really do. Oh, that's fabulous. Now, Tobin, I wanted to ask you about abalone. Your father, Jonas, and yourself all dive for abalone, and then you sell it locally, and I understand you also export it overseas. Could you tell me a little bit about abalone, how deep you have to dive, and the challenges in terms of marketing fresh seafood? So, yeah, Dad first um, acquired a license from when he was living out in Flinders Island when he was farming out there, and he noticed a few boats working around the island. thought, what are they up to? Being an avid recreational diver, um, looked into it a bit further and thought, yeah, this is all right, something to supplement the farming. Um, so, yeah, that dive for a while. And then as uh, Jonas and I grew up, we ended up uh, getting into it sort of in our late teens, early 20s. Um, and we've been diving since. Um, it's a great job to work along the coast and a lot out around Flinders Island because the water's um, a lot clearer out wide around the island. We can spend up to six to eight hours underwater a day, um, depending wow. on the depths. Um, if you're deeper, you can't spend as long underwater because of the decompression um, illnesses. Uh, yeah, days we do um, either fly them off of Flinders Island back to a processor or land each day back at Elliston when we're working around the island. Um, the depths, we can go, abalone will grow to deeper than what we harvest them, but you just don't get to spend the time there. Uh, so we don't always um, chase them out too deep. So around your 25 metres might be the deepest, but we probably only average 14 to 15 metres. We market them predominantly 
it's the Asian consumer because it's a cultural cultural food there. A lot of the Western palate doesn't, or they're not, not as used to it. We are trying yeah. to work in a lot more now and our company, Airwolf Abalone, that's name of the company is made up of the Air Peninsula and the Wolf uh, family name. So that's where we come, came up with Airwolf. We're starting to hold a few more events and there's some cruise ships that's been, that have been stopping in at Flinders Island and we've been um, showing some of the more simple ways to consume it. There's just sashimi or just seared different ways um, to try and get it in front of the Western consumer. Um, and yeah, different consumers that don't typically eat it on a, on a regular basis. So it's been, I suppose you could call it a challenge, but it's been an exciting challenge. Um, yeah. And we're setting up a new boat now that we can, um, take out passengers to see the harvest that we that we do around Flinders Island and see how we dive and what we do and how we handle it because it's not well known in Australia unfortunately and so they harvested all the you know fair way around southern Australia but not many people get to try it or eat it we have we have strict quotas and size limits that really protect our industry well we do look around and cover lots of areas so yeah we're not putting too much pressure on the resource but it's a yeah great yeah. great thing to try that's fabulous. So, Peter, some 11 years ago or so, you had hopped into your light aircraft in Port Lincoln and were heading off to the island to do some regular maintenance and farm work and were planning to stay there the night. Could you tell me about that day as you flew from Port Lincoln towards the island? Yes, recalling and looking back, uh, didn't realise at the time, but, yeah, looking back at there was a bit of confusion uh, with uh, runway numbers and that when I was uh, taxiing and making radio calls out of Port Lincoln. And then I did the direct flight at 7,000 feet because I had quite a bit of water to cross by going direct instead of going up the coastline and across that 30-kilometre stretch uh, to Flinders Island. I went direct and uh, it wasn't until I'd landed and started doing a bit of physical work that the uh, stroke started to... Uh, take place i guess what were the first signs or symptoms that you had that something wasn't quite right oh when i uh, had the an acute headache and uh, was vomiting and i was still uh, up the top of the airstrip rolling up a cyclone fencing wire at the time wow had you ever experienced a headache like that before no never ever <laughs> it was really acute yes was it the sort of headache that makes concentration difficult or makes even doing the simplest tasks really hard? I don't think so because I uh, drove the vehicle, uh, well, it would have been four kilometres and opened and shut two gates, opened the shed door and closed it, uh, grabbed my bag, walked into the house, uh, grabbed the bucket uh, from the laundry to vomit in and uh, <laughs> I was disappointed I fell over and crushed the bucket anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So you fell over as you arrived in the house. What what happened, Peter? Oh, yes. Uh, I walked in the back door into the kitchen. My legs just gave away due to the pressure on my brain from the bleed. Wow. Did you know what was happening at the time? Did you realise you were having a stroke? No, definitely. I thought I had food poisoning <laughs> from the chicken teriyaki subway. So, uh, no, I didn't know I was having a stroke at all. Right. Now, there's a, there was a phone in that kitchen or in that house that you needed to ring in for help. Were you able to reach the phone? No way could I uh, get to it because it was on a uh, table just too high for me to get to. But I also dialed my mobile phone about six times, but uh, that didn't work because the tower was down on the mainland. 
So what happened? So you just lay there. Like how long were you lying there? Total hours. It was all night anyway. Now I can't remember the time of the day that I walked in there, but uh, the time of the day uh, next morning when you guys turned up. So you just lay on the floor and the phone rang and rang and rang, didn't it? That was your wife trying to reach you and just trying to find out if you were okay. What would, Do you remember lying on the floor and being unable to answer the phone? I certainly do, yes. And I was wishing the phone would stop ringing so I could go to sleep. <laughs> but I was very cold on the floor. All I wanted to do was run a hot bath, but that would have been the worst thing I could have done. <laughs> would have accentuated the bleed. That's... Uh, no, I could have drifted off, but uh, so the more important things to live for. Did you did you actually think you were dying as you were lying on the floor, or did you think I've just got a bad bout of food poisoning? Yeah, well, at this stage, I guess I wasn't thinking anything. <laughs> All right. Well, Jonas and Tobin, I'd like to take the story to you now. Now, you were both in Port Lincoln, is that right? Yeah. So we were diving out of or just near Port Lincoln the day before. Um, We were working out at Avoid Bay, um, as I recall. When did you first get word that something was wrong and that your mum couldn't reach your dad on the island? Yeah. So I was staying uh, at mum's um, mum and dad's house in Port Lincoln. So we got back there that night and mum did say, I can't reach dad. He's gone to Flinders Island, but I haven't been able to get a hold of him. He's not answering the phone. So, yeah, that night, obviously, mum kept ringing. And then by the morning, she was trying again. We were actually heading south, uh, heading north, sorry, to work anyway. And, yeah, uh, mum said, I'll try, keep trying this morning. And then she ended up getting a hold of the police along the coast there and saying there could be a search because um, I still can't get a hold of uh, Dad or Peter. So she hadn't heard from him since the morning before, right? So she hadn't no. – he'd flown no. off and that was the last they'd seen was a plane disappearing off towards the island and then there'd been no contact. Has that ever happened before, priorly? Was the phone line that inconsistent that it wasn't unusual or was this a really unusual circumstance? Uh, it was quite unusual because usually, yeah, you would ring um, when you land. Um, so mum had already touched base with the uh, – um, local police uh, up the coast, um, yeah, northwest of Port Lincoln. So I think it was the Minipa and Elliston police um, to let them know that something's not right and she'll keep trying. Yeah, we were out in the boat with no foreign range ourselves that day. Um, so we didn't find out until we got back that night. Uh, the next morning, we yeah, made the choice that we need to go out there. Lana, we've made uh, it so that if I didn't ring by 8 o'clock at night, there'd be something wrong, like I thought, oh, yeah, I've fallen off a windmill, fallen down a well or fallen off a uh, motorbike, something like that, but never believed uh, anything like this would happen. Didn't think of a health problem. Yeah, no, that's totally understandable. It is um, standard protocol that we'd put in place that whenever going out to Flinders Island that you would call when you landed and then uh, check in. At period. I mean, from from the early days of living out there, with a lot of the fishermen working around there um, and there was the morning and evening skeds, us in an abdiving fleet, we always prior report where we're going to leave from and then report when we get back. Um, it's just the standard practice that you do when you're working in these uh, isolated environments. And sometimes it can be a bit difficult because we don't have the phone reception. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit of leeway with the times in case something comes up, yeah, that need to need to do so there's an hour or two either side but once you get into the winter months or the uh, the days are a bit shorter so that eight o'clock 
scheduled call is is at night time so it does leave you um, a little bit vulnerable as in that yeah you can't fly you can't it's too dangerous to take a boat or a plane out there so you do have to sit the night out but yeah we do have regular calls when we leave the leave and land uh, on the island by boat or plane so in this circumstance 11 years ago there's your dad lying on the floor of the kitchen paralyzed from the waist down unable to reach the phone with a splitting headache not realizing he's having a stroke but thinking he's got food poisoning or just having a really bad day (laughs) and your mum must have been just really beside herself with worry when the two of you headed out the next morning to the island what were you expecting or thinking yeah it was a pretty long drive from port lincoln it's about 170 kilometers so it's nearly two hour drive just driving up there before the 45 minute to an hour boat ride yeah so there's quite a few thoughts going through the head um what could have happened and yeah once again health problems were probably one of the last things i um was thinking um accident was probably the at the forefront of the mind yeah both jonas and myself were both yeah, to keep, you know, we're first aid trained and all that for our workplace, um, keep up to date with that regularly. And so we were reasonably prepared, have a good first aid kit on the boat. Um, on the drive up, we yeah, rang one of dad's mates from Elliston that also knows the island quite well. Um, we thought, well, more people we can get on the island to um, help us search um, would be better. And so we picked him up, met him at the boat ramp and then steamed out to Flinders. Um, Jonas dropped two of us off at the beach closest to the manager's house where there's probably about a kilometre walk to the house and Jonas steamed around to the um, Groper Bay house where the airstrip is um, in the boat so he could check that house. <laughs> I do recall this uh, too. Yes, Jonas bought the ambulance. Uh, the uh, the male nurse or the doctor were quite impressed that we had our own ambulance out there, uh, which is a troop carrier, instead of uh, being taken in the back of the ute. To, to the flying doctor plane. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. So, who found you, Peter? Were you were you conscious, or were you at that point just I was conscious? Yes, yeah. I was conscious. Yes, I remember the doctor coming. Actually, uh... your kids found you first, right? So, your kids. Do you remember your kids walking in and finding you? Yes, I do. Yeah, that's when I said, "Oh." When they said, uh, "Call the flying doctor," I said, "Oh, don't be silly. Oh, food poisoning." And of course. Uh, I'd done volunteer ambulance at Streaky Bay, so I knew everything, I suppose. But in that state of mind, uh, you know, all that goes out the window, doesn't it? <laughs> but I remember the doctor, yeah, reminded me of the guy on Top Gear, uh, uh, Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Clarkson. <laughs> Clarkson, that's right, yeah. And, uh, Was your vision blurry too? <laughs> <laughs> His vision might have been blurry. Yeah. So... Tobin, do you remember seeing your dad at that time? What was he like? What did he look like? Yeah, yeah. I did. So just to take you back to the beach where we land, obviously we'd made that plan of where to go and what, yeah, where we thought we could get cars um, and to search the island yeah. and what to check um, of where he may have been. So Jonas dropped um, John Hargemans and myself off at the beach, at Front Beach, closest to the manager's house. Yeah. So we landed there and sort of running across the Salt Lake towards the house. I remember coming around the um, implement shed and the shearing shed there where I got a clear view of the house and I could see the um, front door, sliding door open and the curtain sort of flapping out of it. And yeah. then I started to realise something was wrong. So, yeah, put it, picked up the pace of it and 
got inside and yeah, saw Dad on the floor there. Um, it was very reminiscent. He's not a not a big drinker, but it was like he was drunk. <laughs> he was on the floor and he was sort of slurring and almost dribbling a bit. Couldn't quite talk properly, and <laughs> yeah, it was like he was yeah really drunk. But um, obviously there was no evidence of alcohol around. I didn't smell, and yeah, so quickly got there and um, yeah, rang the uh, flying doctors. Uh, got onto the doctor there to yeah start to well we tried to keep him warm get a blanket because it was it's the end of may in southern australia it's quite cold and he was on a uh, cement floor with just lino and i'm not even sure if there's any lino underlay either that or it's collapsed a lot from no. over time oh, so it was yeah oh, it must have been freezing oh yes i was <laughs> yeah so we rang the flying doctors and yeah started to get that communication line and started to be able to make some checks that we were advised to do and, yeah. What did they ask you to do while they were on their way? What did they, what instructions did they give you? Oh, it's a long time ago now. No, <laughs> the smile. There was, I remember there was oh, some squeeze. strength, strength yeah. ones, some smile. Um, yeah, some questions, some vision, yeah, things like that. To, yeah, just check his um, physical and cognitive abilities, I guess, yeah. Yeah, and and what sort of state was your dad in? Uh, you say he was sort of like almost appeared drunk. He was sort of out of it. Was he in discomfort and pain still, or just sort of semi conscious? Didn't seem to be in discomfort or pain. He seemed to be more. Yeah, there was the cold, um, but he was slurring his words. Um, was quite um, disorientated. Right. Um, knew where he was, but yeah, would have been struggled to get up. We tried to. Yeah, put him in the recovery position, get him warm, get him comfortable and, yeah. Yeah. And see what he needed. Were you worried about him at that point? Yeah, there was definitely some concern, but to see him alive and not physically injured was a bit of a relief. Um, I was expecting some pretty heavy first aid to be administered, but to not know that because you can't see it, it was hard to know that, you know, that it was that bad. It was probably masking it, obviously, that if we'd left it, and not rang the flying doctor, it could have been a totally different situation. We could have just sat him up and said, here's a nice cup of warm cup of tea and chill out <laughs> on the couch for a bit. But obviously, yeah, you've had a bad do those <laughs> Well, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because when you have a, a really horrific injury, you know, there's blood or there's broken bones or there's, there's real visible signs of trauma. But when you have a stroke, those, those visible signs are inward. And it's it's very hard to know the extent of it. Did you call your mum right away to tell her that you'd found your dad? Yeah, we did after calling the flying doctors. Um, yeah, but, yeah, like you say, it's not easy to see those um, injuries, injuries, but also he wasn't complaining of pain or anything like that. He was still trying <laughs> to pull the food poisoning card. So <laughs> it was... Uh, you know, he's right, don't have to call the flying doctors, I've just got food poisoning. It's mm-hmm. like, well, you know, you look a bit worse than that. Not that I've experienced food poisoning, but, yeah, <laughs> thought there was something a bit more sinister happening. <laughs> yeah, so the flying doctor landed on the strip there um, on the island. What did they say when they arrived? Well, it was uh, Dr Ballard from memory, um, of course. We picked them up from the airstrip and took them to the manager's house um, where then he did his own assessment and stabilised uh, Peter on the stretcher. Um, and then, uh, as, as the old man was, he was 
quite chuffed really that we had the troop carrier out there which uh, is converted quite nicely to an ambulance to take him down to the to the airstrip it didn't, I, it didn't get any sirens though so. no no <laughs> hey, i must say that the the rfds like since making the call the the plane was out there in two hours and two basically hours, yeah. had him stabilized and back in the air again within three hours that's how quick it was Oh, it's just incredible. Yeah, it's been not, no time at all, and they were there. <laughs> Flying straight to uh, Adelaide then so that he could go into operation at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. Were you conscious for that whole trip, Peter, or do you, do you remember any of it? Yes, we were going past the plane uh, before getting to the uh, RFDS plane, and I asked him to stop and get my headset. I said, you won't be needing that because I envisaged myself and the co-pilot seat in the Pilates PC-12, which are a fantastic plane. <laughs> so you were thinking, here's my chance to co-pilot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I bet the doctor and nurse uh, encouraged you to just simply lie on the stretcher and, and be the patient. Yes, it was a quick, you won't be needing that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you called your mum and I understand your mum immediately started organising a commercial flight so she could meet your dad in Adelaide and be yeah. there in hospital when he came out of surgery. Did the two of you stay there on the island as your dad flew off? I think we, yeah, we did for a bit, obviously, to tidy things up and get things back in order and then I believe we headed back in at some stage to Elliston and packed everything up, the boat away and everything. And then I think it must have been a day or so after and we made our way to Adelaide. Well, well, we kept communication up with mum to find out what was happening and surgeries and so forth and whether we could go over to actually visit. Um, I think it was a few days later and I had my two young daughters then and my wife and we all went over to visit. What was the prognosis once you actually got to the hospital, Peter? Do you, what was the final say from the doctors about what had happened and why you were experiencing the symptoms you'd experienced? He was still bleeding, to my knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. I th- I th- my understanding was that because he was on the cold floor overnight, it actually slowed the bleeding. The cold floor is probably what saved him. If it was if he was warm overnight, it may have uh. increased the bleeding and then, of course, clots form so my understanding was that once we kept him warm and then obviously mm-hmm. in the plane is warm it did clot during that flight at some stage and then it was actually emergency surgery when he got to Adelaide mm-hmm. to release that clot um, that was my recollection of it yeah, yeah. well the surgeon Marguerite Harding uh, saw me and uh, anyway she said uh, you have a life-threatening injury it's a uh, right temporal low bleed and if we don't operate it's uh, is life-threatening and um, so we have to operate straight away I said fine she said oh we have to do a craniotomy that's right and I envisaged the whole top of my head coming off and my brain's being exposed and I said well while you're there can you uh, polish up a few of the dull areas please <laughs> and she put her hand and laughed and said, Peter, you're meant to be a sick man. (laughs) (laughs) Did you still believe at that time that food poisoning played a role in how you were feeling or how you had abandoned that theory at that point? (laughs) Yeah, everything was fine. (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, went very well. 
Was there a long rehabilitation process for you, Peter, when you got through the surgery? Did, did it take a long time for you to recover? Yes, I did a stint at uh, College Grove Rehabilitation Centre. Then after that, I was pretty right, yeah. <laughs> did you have memory loss as a consequence of the stroke? No, no, more than normal. No, okay. And then did you have any uh, physical ailments that you, like uh, often when people have a stroke, they have difficulty with mobility, with walking or with speaking or that sort of thing, did you, or speech, did you have any kind of trouble like that afterwards? No, the only problem I've had is a collapsed arch in my left foot, and so I consider I got off very lightly. That's great. All right, well, this is really just a a somewhat remarkable story. You seem to have a a seven lives, Peter, I think. (laughs) So as long as you stay away from the chicken teriyaki sandwiches, I think you should be okay. (laughs) That's right. And uh, also, you can't rely on Telstra. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me about life now. Are you back to normal? Are you just continuing your activities at the island and... And so forth is how is life now, 10 years on? No, at 71, still out there running the island, and it's life is normal and great. <laughs> That's fabulous. That's really good. On reflection, are there any life lessons for you other than Telstra related? Do you have any other life lessons, Peter, that this has taught you? No, just that uh, general check in, you know, let others know where you are, and uh, whenever I go, uh, Roaming around the 9,000 acres on Flinders Island, I'd take an EPIRB with me, an emergency uh, positioning... uh, Emergency beacon. um, Yes, that's it. (laughs) Yeah, the emergency beacon. They're brilliant. I've interviewed a number of people and they've saved their lives. So that's fantastic that you have one of those on you. Jonas and Tobin, has this experience changed your view on life at all or on your dad? I would say that it has been quite a life-changing event. One thing that I do remember when I was talking with Dr. Ballard out at Flinders Island um, and he was just getting a bit of history on the old man and, well, even ourselves and saying how we were abalone divers. We're of the new era divers that have gone through the uh, commercial dive course and understand what it is we are undertaking and what diving does to our bodies and take every measure to us make it as safe as possible. Unfortunately, when the old man was diving, it was of an earlier era and they were learning all of that stuff as they went and there were a couple of incidents um, including ones that did put him in the recompression chamber Wow! and that as Dr Ballard said can be quite destructive on the body Mm. and it's likely that there was a weak spot caused which might have flared up subsequently because of the, the flying or events that had led up to um, when the old man had his stroke. And it, it's been a really interesting process beyond that to go through where it, it was a major brain trauma and it was all inside the skull. Mm-hmm. And, and as was alluded to, you, you don't see any of that. And he recovered remarkably well physically, like you wouldn't even pick it that he'd had a stroke. But cognitively, just little things that are you know starting to occur you you can see that um yeah i I think it has had a bit of an impact on on life in that way and then of course you know recovering from that you go through all of those stages of recovery you know probably starting off with denial and anger and then 
leading down to where we are now. What was it, 10, 11 years ago? So it's now got to a stage where we can function a lot better as a family. But in those early years, there were some really, really difficult times. And we were just basically at our wit's end of what to do. And it's just one of those unfortunate realities of the the situation and the journey that we have to go through. Yeah, you know, that's a really good reflection. I can tell you that my father, who's 81, had went in for heart surgery a few years ago. And while he was in the heart surgery, had a major stroke. And so we were in ICU waiting for him to come out of his heart surgery and he just didn't come out. And then it became more and more distressing as we realized that things were not good. My dad, like you, Peter, is a fighter (laughs) and he... He wouldn't, he wouldn't take it lying down. And now, several years on, you would never know that he'd had a stroke. But, oh, my gosh, he had a battle. He had a battle mm. on even being able to remember five fruits or five makes of cars or, you know, things that he, you know, would have no trouble with earlier. And he's really come back fighting and in an effort to regain what he lost So I have absolute respect for people like yourselves, Peter, for going through what you go through. It's it's a scary and emotional challenge. But as I said, hats off to you and and people like my dad who who make it make it through such uh, challenging circumstances and and go on to continue living a wonderful life on an island. (laughs) Picturesque and happy. It's fantastic. And that's one of the frustrating things is that when you know that they are so fit and healthy and then for this to happen it's so indiscriminate and Mm -hmm. then the frustration Mm -hmm. afterwards because of the the impairment that it causes when prior to that you know they're at the top of their game it it is just yeah such a an unfortunate um, turn of events well i'm glad peter that you've got your epurb on you now that when you're out there on the island so if you ever need to turn on a distress beacon you can and you've got obviously a fantastic succession plan in place with two lovely sons who are well competent and able to be able to help you as things progress along in time so thank you so much for coming to talk to me today about what happened it's been a pleasure talking to you too no problem and Thank you to the RFDS for the service that they provide. Us living in rural and remote areas, I mean, even Streaky Bay here, the hospital and the GPs that we have rely on it greatly to fly out any incidents that do occur. I actually, as another thing that I get involved in, I'm, I'm the chair of the local Streaky Bay Medical Clinic, which is a, an association that owns the clinic and engages the GPs to provide the service to the um, local hospital in the town. And it's one of those things that the doctor shortage in rural and remote areas is real and it has been for a long time. Without the services of the RFDS, it would just be a total catastrophe. You simply wouldn't be able to live in these areas. Well, I can tell you from an RFDS perspective, we absolutely love serving communities like your own. Now, before we go... If somebody wanted to book your beautiful accommodation on your remote island surrounded by absolutely beautiful still oceans and and landscapes, how do they do it? Is there a website they should go to to make a booking? You can get in touch with us at flindersgetaway.com and you can follow us on um, social media through there too and follow the story and everything they're up to with the Safe Havens Project and the uh, tourism operation out there. Fabulous. Our connectivity on the island is... Uh, 
we've made some major changes since that time. Um, yeah, connectivity and all the safety aspects out there. We've uh, upgraded a lot of things and continue to work on that to make our guests feel very safe out there. Well, it sounds absolutely beautiful. I hope you get more visitors to come out and explore your shores and explore your island. It sounds amazing. Oh, and Lana, we've had a couple of calls uh, while being on the island. I think pe- people would be better off being on the island uh, with the being picked up and taken to Adelaide uh, rather than uh, being in Adelaide uh, ramping, I think, <laughs> by the <laughs> reports coming back. So the remoteness was really taken away by the service of the RFDS. Just yeah, so it's 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 an unfortunate circumstance. That yeah, unfortunately, metro hospitals are, are pretty jammed, but you get pretty good service, good priority service when you're with the RFDS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you so much to all three of you, and have a lovely rest of your day. I really appreciate that you spent so much time telling me everything. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02-8405-7928. We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Coolen. Thanks again for listening. Hi, Lana. This is Alex from Sydney. Um, I just wanted to say that I absolutely love the podcast. Such incredible, fascinating stories. Honestly, every episode, my jaw is on the floor. Um, So my friend is a doctor and she actually did some work with the Flying Doctor service a few years ago. And so your pod has you know, really given me a whole new level of respect for what you all do. Um, So I just wanted to say keep up the great work and I can't wait for more apps. Thanks so much, Anna.